0: Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces
1: you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. The neighborhood where I'm living right now is pretty fond of fireworks. People set them off at night and sometimes during the day too for no particular reason, like not for any special occasion. And usually the fireworks set off the car alarms and then all the neighborhood dogs start howling at the same time at the car alarm. And then it's total cacophony in this way that I actually really like. Um, And anyway, this happened for an obvious reason at midnight on New Year's Eve. Um, When midnight rolled around, we started to hear and see fireworks. And so we went outside to the deck in our backyard and alongside the fireworks and the sirens and the dogs, we also heard that people were screaming and whooping and like cheering. And so we screamed and cheered too. Um, and the funny thing about this, this backyard is that you can't really see anyone from it. You can only hear and be heard. Um, just the voices and sound connecting you to this sense of community of people you're living in. You hear them throw their voices out and you throw your voice back. And that's what makes connection and community in this neighborhood in moments like this. And so when I was sitting down to work on this episode, that's the image I kept thinking about. Even when we are apart from each other, voices can find each other, which is really the phenomenon that Thresholds has enacted, at least for me, in this past year. In this year that's been void of touch and connection and a lot of the ability to meet each other face to face. These conversations, which have been recorded sometimes in unglamorous ways, like usually in closets on the phone, have been so sustaining a way of hearing community and of being connected by voices. Natalie Diaz talking in October uh, on our phone call said something really beautiful about how the voice was a promise of future touch. A voice on the phone can be a forerunner to the arrival of the person the voice belongs to. Also, I think, and especially right now, voice can be a kind of touch itself. So in gratitude and in wonder, we wanted to go back and make a roundup episode of some of our favorite moments from the conversations of 2020, moments that moved us and touched us. This is a kind of joyful and grateful review of our work from the last year before we start with weekly new episodes next Wednesday. You'll hear parts of conversations with Mira Jacob, Ocean Vuong, Natalie Diaz, Carmen Maria Machado, Alexander Chi, and Michael Denzel-Smith. We're starting with Mira, followed by Ocean and Natalie. Enjoy. My husband,
2: um, I was supposed to pick him up on a train. We were, we were heading to the Cape with friends. And I went to pick him up. And I just remember this because my son fell asleep in the back of the car. And when he fell asleep, my husband said, listen, I got to tell you on the train, I had a really bad conversation with my folks. And I said, what happened? And he said, you know, I just, you know, they keep saying that, you know, they're leaning toward Trump, they're leaning toward Trump. And I just lost it. And I said, what are you thinking? We're Jewish. What are you thinking? My wife is brown. What do you think this man is doing? This is crazy. And, and he's like, and then, and he's like, I guess, I guess really what happened is that was in an email, his mother, and he had had an email exchange about it. And then his father had read the email, and then his mother called and said, your father's so angry. He doesn't, um, he doesn't know how to talk to you anymore. And he's really furious. And it was kind of put to him like, you need to make this right. We're in the car, driving, the kids asleep in the back. My husband's parents have, like many of our parents, been um, ill with various things. We're aware of their mortality in a way that I think you can kind of be unaware sometimes, but we're not anymore. My own father died um, from cancer about 12 years ago. And I knew all of that put together, and I, I was sort of formulating in my head, what's important here? What's important here? What's the important part? And at that point, it was 2015, and I think what I said to him was, maybe you just don't talk to him about it anymore. These are your parents. They're not going to change their minds. I said it, and I said it because I kind of wanted to take care of the thing in him. But then that night, The thing in me that was broken just suddenly was like, what? What? And I remember I turned to him and I was like, listen, I just got to ask you. They don't, uh, they don't love our son less than they love their white grandkids, do they? And he was quiet. And in that quiet, like I just started sobbing and it was this really hard moment because and he immediately was like no that's not wait you're not uh and he's like that's not what i don't know how to say this to you and i was like say the thing to me just say it and he said it's not that they love him less it's that they don't think that he's brown and i was like well <laughs> oh god <gasps> what do i do you know um he what do you do? Mike, what do you do? What did you do? I mean, I wrote a book. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
4: I kept thinking about this one time when I was working at Boston Market. That was one of my first jobs. And I was having such a terrible day, as one does working in corporate fast food. Um, we had a terrible boss, you know. He was just, um, you know, nothing wrong with evangelical Christians, I suppose. But this one was, uh, you know, he would he would shut down the store and and, blair, and play recordings of televangelists. And it was just the most bizarre. <laughs> it was, and then meanwhile the chickens are roasting in the back. It was just. And I, I left my shift and, you know, it's a con- rural Connecticut. So, you know, you walk across the street and there was this cornfield. And a lot of uh, the, the employees would use it when they walk home. We all walked for some reason um, because it was a shortcut through this main road. And I walked, you know, into this cornfield. And it was so, so charged because we were selling and eating cornbread um in the Boston market, um, which is half, I learned later, was just half cake, which is why it was so good. It was actually not not bread at all. It was cake. Um, and I walked through this, this cornfield and I thought, I need to change my life. I, I don't know how. I need to just either I stay in this cornfield and just let it swallow me. Or I just I got to find a way to get the hell out of out of all this Um and it was it was this weirdness in the sense that the the corn hid you. I, you know I was like, just, you see the plans all over your head, and then you think, I can be at any place in time." I don't know if I'm, I'm, I belong to myself, you know, and I think that derangement of the senses, which what Rambo kept talking about, <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't feel it with um, absinthe, but I felt it with corn. Um, and, and I think that was the moment where I said, I don't know how I'm going to figure it out. I didn't know what art was. I didn't know what poetry was, but I, I knew that I got to find a way to, to, to hide from the life I was given and enter a a different world, a different cornfield. It's so familiar now, going back to New England. But it's just like New England, like working class New England life. You know, not the 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 private schools that we're known for. You know, not the the WASP. Although they exist. It was the people who ran things, you know, the essential workers, as we now understand it, um, you know, this diverse group of immigrants, um, who, you know, come to know the world through this very idiosyncratic uh, nature of these uh, broken New England mill towns, you know, and, and so America as a, a dream, America as a promise, felt so far away for all of us, of all races. Um, And so you just watch your friends, you know, die from overdoses, of suicide, or they grow up and they're, you know, they were these legends in high school. And then by the time they're 20, they ran out of options and they're joining the Marines and they're killed in Iraq. And it just, it's just like this, everyone was asking the same questions and none of us knew what to do with it. And it just felt so quintessentially American to me, um, which is also antithetical to the American dream, this golden land of opportunity. Uh, I don't know if I experienced that, particularly after nine eleven, particularly in the opioid epidemic.
1: What do you think it was about that day? I imagine that you had seen and walked through that cornfield many times before that day and that you did it again many times afterwards
4: Yeah, yeah, I think about that um Yeah, I think it was more about that week, you know, I had a one of my friends, you know, his name was Crackhead Mike, and he had um uh when he when he was born, and so they had to cut open his head right down the middle. And you know he was this very beautiful person, um, but he he grew up in those towns and and you don't have a lot of hope and and I, just, I remember it was just the saddest and funniest moment. Yeah, I think it was the day before when I was talking to him, and he said, "I'm going to join the Marines. I'm going to do it." Um, and another friend of mine was there. He said, "How are you going to do it, uh, Mike? You have a, you know you have a crack in your head. They're not going to let you through the the." Examination that we didn't even know if that's true or not, but what he said, uh, he said, "No, no, I, I already figured it out." You know, he had black hair, and he, he took out a sharpie, and he started coloring in the skin on the, in the crack. He said, "I, I do this, um, I can make it through, and they don't, they won't pay attention to my head." <laughs> and we just, we just laughed. and I, I just, I don't know why. I just felt like that little act of, of you know, disguising yourself in order to to be a part of a war machine. Of course, I didn't think of it that way um, back then, but it was just so devastatingly quintessential where I was coming from. And I, I just, I was angry at everything that, that made it possible. Um, I was angry at my job, at my boss, and I was just tired. I think exhaustion, exhaustion, you know, uh, as a species, I think it's exhaustion and danger that creates creativity. How do I get out of here? How do I uh, how do I build this fish trap? You know, um, it's always the question. And, and I think that, that moment of, of innovating beyond your condition begins with fatigue, exhaustion, and discontent. I think.
5: So I also have really bad anxiety, and I, I feel like these things are connected. Um, and I, that anxiety is a, comes across as a sense of doom for me. And it's, it's almost as if, uh, and I've tried hard to write toward this, but you know, I, really, I, I really can imagine the boundaries of a single second. And I, it's that uh, my anxiety makes time that expansive. You know that I can bear. That I'm not sure I can make it to the next second or to the next minute. And in some ways, that is also a physicality that I've experienced on the basketball court, where it's almost a state of crisis, unless you can reorganize it, right? And I think that's a way that I've tried to, and, and that's maybe some of the ways I'm trying to relate to the idea of the threshold is that is that, you know, you can't stop because I can't imagine what stopping is, you know, like even when in my worst anxieties, I don't know what might be on the other side of stopping. And, and like the dark side of that is like, you know, things like suicide or, or when people have like, you know, self-harm is somehow a release to them. But, but because of the ways I think I've related to my body as an athlete, I, I, those are things I can't imagine. And so there's just a, there's almost like stepping outside of time which is interesting because maybe that is a threshold that you cross like y- you have to cross over the threshold of time so that you can somehow exist in that uh in that tension or in that extreme i guess it's even you know panic or or chaos or maybe it's just maybe it's even ecstatic you know um like anxiety i think is ecstatic uh, being pushed to the limit so for example in terms of my body, like there have been times when, when I know I, my body can't go anymore and yet it is. And and so that's not a real time. I think like I've learned to measure time with my body, but, but that's something that exists outside of me. And so in some ways I think there's, there's an entire like field of the ecstatic that is happening perpetually or at the same time I am, even if I haven't been taught to access it or have been dislocated from it, you know? So that idea that those things are, are either holy or they're somehow like extremely negative, you know? So we've kind of pushed them uh, at such, you know, polar opposites, but, but really, I think they're both accessible at the same time and, and they often happen at the same time, at, at least in my experience of trying to relate to that.
1: That was Natalie Diaz, preceded by Ocean Vuong, and we started with Mira Jacob. Next up, you'll hear Carmen Maria Machado talking about writing her book In the Dream House. I think what I want to ask you is who you think you would be if not for that period where you were out of your life and out of that blur came this book. You were clearly moved to write this book. Uh And then the process of writing the book was so excruciating. I didn't think being moved to write the book is actually the right way to describe it. I think I had to pass the book like a kidney stone.
0: You know, I think I had to get it out of my system. I had to get it out of my own way. Because I had other things I wanted to do. And it felt like this book... Because my first book, I had started it before my ex and I started dating. But this book was the first book that was sort of born, like in a world where that was my reality, that was my entire reality. And I, I think that I, I needed to get it out of my own way. And so I, I don't, I mean, it's like, it's trying to imagine, like, it's like, it's not as if I like got an inspiration one day. It was like, I think I'll write that book. Like, it's like, I feel like it feels inevitable. It feels as seared into my timeline as like any, any other fact about me, you know? But I do imagine, I mean, like I imagine a world like maybe where like I said to my spouse, I had to write this book and she was like, I don't think you should sell that book right now. Like I'm trying to imagine like a version of the world where like I just made the decision not to work on it for whatever reason or I didn't, you know, and I don't know. I think I'd probably be a little healthier to be quite honest. I think I would be a little happier. I'd be, I mean, I would have, who knows what I would have written over those six months. I had those residencies already lined up. So it's like, and I had all these plans. I thought I was going to finish the memo really quickly and then I could like write, work on something else. And I had all these plans. I didn't fucking fucking did. didn't do anything else. So I don't know. I guess I sort of feel like, yeah, the me that didn't write this book. I don't know. She's probably a lot happier, a lot healthier. Because I mean, think about think about books too. Is, is it goes on and on. You know, it's not just. It's like it's like writing the book, which took forever, and now it touring the book, so having to talk about it, and and in a way, I mean, it's like. And i get i get emails about it every day literally every day i get emails from strangers messages on instagram all kinds i get like five a day easily and sometimes it's just people saying like thanks for writing a sense of people being like here's all this stuff that happened to me you know what i mean like which is like fine but also i feel like in a way it's like and and i feel like i've I've had this this hesitation that i had which is like you know when you write about trauma I, it, there's this worry i think that it'll like mark you as like the writer who did the x thing right and like i hope for the rest of my career people are like oh yeah that's that <laughs> that's the bitch you wrote that book about domestic queer domestic violence like you know so that and that makes me nervous you know and i but because I, I just want to write fiction again and yeah i don't i don't know so i don't know i don't know like what that looks like i don't know what. um who what she would look like except she would probably
1: be she'd probably be a little better. That was Carmen Maria Machado. Next, a moment from my conversation with Alexander Chi, who told the story of the day in his 20s when he witnessed his first police riot.
3: We went to someone's house to watch the news to see what was reported which was a lot of what we did back then. We would do these actions and then we would try to see like how did the news carry it? Sometimes it would be carried. Sometimes it would not be carried, but I, I'm pretty sure we all went out dancing afterwards, which was this like sounds, it may sound crazy, except, you know, that, that's part of how we got through was to just find, find yourself on the dance floor, let it all out on the dance floor, you know, so there was, there was a lot of dancing to get through that time. And I think, you know, even I was thinking about this last night when I did karaoke with my friends. Karaoke is a part of how I get through <laughs> this time. Um Why do all this if you can't go sing and dance with your friends? Something that we talked about a lot back then more was uh how do you how can you protest in such a way that you're not getting arrested? You're not putting yourself in police custody. You're not being a part of what the right complains about, where they they point to, like, the cost of a protest, you know. You know, the police over time, you know, they accuse you of wasting taxpayer money. And so there was a certain amount of that. Also, like, the pol- the way that the police treated people once they had them in custody varied wildly around gender, race, uh, and HIV status. Um, so it wasn't equally safe for all of us to participate in nonviolent protests and getting arrested. So writing seemed like, you know, the obvious choice. I was on the media committee. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I feel like I still am in some ways. Uh, like it's all just one long extension so um, I'm not Barbara Kruger, but like her work informed my work just as, you know, the new narrative writers in San Francisco at the time that I was there also informed how I think about the ways in which writing my life into literature is its own disruption of the kind of larger Literary historical practices and projects that are ongoing.
1: And now you teach now younger I, writers how to do that too.
3: Yes. Yes. <laughs> You're bringing exactly. more people
1: onto the media committee.
3: It's, it's kind of, yeah. It's kind of, it's all just media committee
1: <laughs> <laughs> all the way down. That was Alexander Chi. Next and last, we have Michael Denzel Smith describing the unexpected existential confusion of turning 30.
6: But it's just like, <sighs> Put it in perspective for me that it's like, no, things actually do change with time. Like this 30 marker is something to pay attention to, whether or not it's like a culturally constructed thing about like, you know, that just sort of valorizes and, and romanticizes youth and then cast you off the pasture once you turn 30. Like it's whether, whether it's that or not, there's something to this. Right. And then I had to pay attention to that and then think about like. I'm turning I've turned 30. I'm turning 30. I've turned 30 and I did the thing that I set out to do. I don't know what comes next. I didn't plan for anything.
1: I remember actually and this you didn't you just said this to me in passing when we were on the pop-up tour. And if you'd mm-hmm. prefer we not like include this in the interview, that's fine. Just tell me. But I remember you saying to me backstage before one of the shows, you were having one of these, like, what do I do with my life now? Like, my mm-hmm. book is out. I'm turning 30. And you turned to me and you said, I never planned to live past 30. Like, I I'm- never even thought about the idea of of being older than 30. Like every, all of my plans stopped before 30. And so now I feel like I have to make up what the rest of my life looks like.
6: Absolutely. Absolutely. I had no conception of what a life after 30 could look like because I'd never imagined it. I'd always seen or, or just existed with the fear that I would die before them, right? Like, and that's tied up in so many different things about, like, what it is to be young and Black in an American context of living under white supremacy, like, and my own sort of anxiety, right? Like, just, like, being surrounded by death or feeling I've been exposed to death a lot when I was younger. And I was consumed with that thought. It's just like, oh, at 17, yeah, like, you die. Or, like, 21, you die. Like, 25, I'm going to be dead, right? It's like witnessing during that time, like, before before all the new names, it was Trayvon Martin, it was Jordan Davis, it was Michael Brown. It was just, like, I don't know, I can't conceive of what a life means past this, like, seemingly arbitrary marker, but, like, it's real for me. And it became so real when I, like, approached it, when it, it happened. And it's like, oh... Now I've got to figure out who I am and how I want to be in the world as a grown man. (laughs) Um, It's just like, okay, all right. And I have to do it now with creeping fascism on, (laughs) you know? I don't even know that I I think of it in terms of uh, it being a sure thing. It's just like now it's a possibility that I should keep an open mind about like there being a future.
1: It's so interesting because it feels like this book to me is such an, it reads to me like an attempt to articulate a worldview, Mm. a a summation of this is what I believe as Mm -hmm. an adult person in America. And, and it also is sort of a plea for action that might create a future that's inhabitable, right? It's a it's yeah. a really future-oriented book in its own way, even in a way that feels full of fear and full of skepticism and full of um cha- like the challenge of making the future something we can all survive yeah. in various ways. Um, it feels like a book that has that comes out of a desire to imagine a future that is possible and articulate yourself having an orientation toward it.
6: Absolutely. Like you 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 hit it right on the head. It's it's me working out all of those anxieties around like saying, "Okay, I used to not believe that I would have a future." And now I'm here in in that space and I'm looking around <laughs> and I'm saying, "Well, the conditions that made me believe that the future was not possible still exist. And there's so many things that have to change. And there's so many things that like have to change, not just for me, right? Like not just being like selfish, like, no, there's things that have to change so that I can live my future. It's like, so that we, so that the the we that I articulate toward the end, like the, the idea that all of us and like caring for Everyone at each point of identity, at each point of uh, his history, right, like that all of us have a responsibility to ensure the future for other people because of the ways in which we have benefited in, from systems of oppression and that we have enacted violence in other people's lives. We have a responsibility to course correct uh, and we have we, we're 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 up against it we're really up against time right now and so like it's urgent it's really urgent and it sounds weird like it, it's it's a really hopeful book in so many ways right because i'm saying that it's possible like we can do it i understand that now i understand that that future is possible it's just like how much work are we willing to do to make it like to actualize it? Um, And are we going to actualize it for everyone?
1: That was Michael Denzel Smith. And before him, Alexander Chi, Carmen Maria Machado, Natalie Diaz, Ocean Vuong, and we started with Mira Jacob. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for listening through all of 2020. We wouldn't be here without you. Next week, we're airing our first new episode of 2021, A Conversation with Raven Lilani. and we'll be back every Wednesday with a new episode all through 2021. Take care. See you next Wednesday. Threshold is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week.